The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Good morning. Welcome again to Coastal. Uh, My name is Ryan. I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, like I said, Pastor Chris is in Israel. Pastor Scott's in Israel. Um, They're all over there having a great time. Uh, A little bit of jealous uh, because all the pictures we've seen, but uh, we're going to have an awesome time here this morning as well. We are continuing on um, in the Losing My Religion series, uh, just going through the book of James. And so today we're going to continue into James uh, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And so to kind of set it up a little bit, um, you know, the whole point of this series that we're in, the Losing My Religion series, you know, it's all about basically losing your religion, like losing the world's perception of your religion, right? Because the problem is, I think even though a lot of us know Christ, we're, we're Christians, we still kind of feed into what the world thinks religion is, right? I know most people who aren't Christians, that's what they see Christians as, right? They see Christians as what the world sees religion as, and, and that's kind of what we want to debunk and break down here this morning, right? We want to look at the idea of uh, basically worldliness versus godliness, Right, what, what the world says religion and a relationship with God should be uh, versus what God says it should be, what he says it is in his word. And so we're going to use uh, James chapter 4, verses just 1 through 12, just 12 short verses to kind of uh, break that down and really see what lessons we can pull out um, from this passage. And so we're just going to jump right into it. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 12, I'm going to read through them, and then we're going to kind of break them down section by section to see what we can really pull out. All right, so James 4, 1 through 12 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, but, uh, but you, because you ask wrongly, right, to spend it on your passions. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God or hostility? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Wow, that, there's a lot of just really great godly stuff in this passage. We want to kind of break it down section by section so we can really see what James is saying here. So we start with verses 1 and 3. I'm going to read it again real quick. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Right? Do you design, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Right, so the first question we see here, uh, and basically in verse 1, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Right, and so I think the issue we're going to see with this entire passage, right, this, really in the entire Bible, is that we try uh, to interpret God's word with our own understanding. 
right? That's the problem with worldliness. We try to basically use our world-tinted, our world vision, our world understanding to understand what God is saying in his word, right? And it just doesn't work out like that because that's not what he meant. So it's just a constant issue of interpretation because we, you know, choose to use the wrong source of understanding, right? So just that first question, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes your fights? So for us, we immediately jump to like our external circumstances, right? When you think, what causes my quarrels, what causes my fights in my life? You know, it's my job, it's my family, it's my financial situation, right? I mean, it's the people that surround me, it's my friends, it's my spouse's crazy family, it's my crazy family, it's the dummies that I drove by on the way to church this morning, right? These are what we consider to cause our, you know, our quarrels and our fights, But again, that's using our worldly vision, our worldly goggles. That's not what James is talking about at all. James is actually referring to more of an internal struggle. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, most of us, from time to time, we do have legitimate conflicts. We do have legitimate quarrels in our lives. And some of these quarrels, you know, are birthed out of legitimate wrongs, like legitimate sins, legitimate harms that come into our lives. The Bible says that not all fights are evil. Again, what James is describing is an internal struggle. It's not circumstantial. It's not based on all the things in our lives. It's based on us. It's all about who we are and has nothing to do with what's going on around us. So if we look at it, you know, as we get older, as we grow more physically, as we grow in maturity, in our own understanding, we also grow spiritually. We also grow internally. And so I think what happens is you can actually kind of break it down into two different ways uh, that we grow internally, that we grow spiritually. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. You'll see throughout your life, you may be able to look back and see it's one way or another. But there's really, you'll find yourself in two different camps at one point in your life. And so the first way that we can uh, grow internally, and the first way that we can grow spiritually is by being aware of God's gifts in our life. The first way we go is by being aware of God's gifts in our lives. And so what's happened is when you've experienced God, when you know God, when you have a relationship with God, you know what it is to have. And you know what it is to have, not because you deserve it, but because God's given it to you, right? God's gifted it to you, right? You recognize that nothing comes from you and everything comes from God. You know, maybe, maybe you struggle, maybe you struggle with sickness, Right? And you just seem down the dumps with your health, but, but now you're healthy and you recognize it's because of God's miraculous healing power that you are healthy now. Or maybe you've struggled financially. You've just been in the rock bottom of you know, financial issues, but now you're coming out of it or you have come out of it and you recognize that it was God's power that put you in the situations to get out of it. Or maybe you know, you've just been in the pit of despair and anxiety and stress and indecision. But but now you're out of it, and you recognize that it was only through God's grace that you are where you are now. And so what happens is when you recognize this, you become glad. And this really cool, you know, cycle kind of kicks off, right? You receive these gifts, you recognize these gifts are from God, you become glad, and your glad turns to appreciation. Your gladness to appreciation, your appreciation turns into an outward gratitude, Right? And then this outward gratitude results in even more blessings from God. It's just this continual cycle of receiving gifts and recognizing gifts and being appreciative and, and showing gratitude and then receiving more gifts. Right? And that's what James says we are to fill ourselves up with internally. 
That's how we are supposed to grow internally, to grow spiritually, through recognizing that God gives us everything in our lives. But then there's the second way that we can grow. And the hard part about this one is that, you know, no one ever wants to admit that this is them. But if you look back on your life, at some point or another, myself included, all of us have seen ourselves in this category. And this is, we grow with a sense of entitlement. The second way that we grow internally, grow spiritually, is that we grow with a sense of entitlement. And so what happens is when you feel entitled, you expect, right? You expect things. You expect things to happen how you want them, when you want them. And what happens when we expect like this is that we then don't receive, We don't receive the things that we think we should and when we should get them. And so when we don't receive, we grow in contentment. And that contentment's not just to other people, but it turns into contentment for God, and that's how we begin to fill ourselves internally. You know, and honestly, just a little sidebar, the weirdest part about all this is that, you know, we feel like we're not receiving how we should, so we go in contentment towards God and others, but we are actually receiving things. They're just not on our timeline, right? They're not how we want them. And even though we're receiving them, we turn away from God. And, you know, honestly, I think the true, the true test, like the true litmus test of if you do have a spirit of entitlement, if you are growing internally through entitlement, it's that you see yourselves not being able to be happy for others, right? You see yourself not being able to rejoice in the wins and the successes of people around you. And that's because this whole time you're seeing that happen to other people, you're saying, well, why not me? Right? You're saying, I deserve this, or I deserve that. I deserve what they have, their job, their family, their car, their house, I deserve all of that success that they have, whatever it is. But thinking about it is to be honest, you don't want what you actually deserve in this life. Because the Bible says that we are all deserving of, of death and eternal separation from God. But it's only through God's grace, his amazing grace, that we come out of that. Right? It's, it's that even though at, at times, you know, myself included, we all have this sense of entitlement where we expect things to happen how we want, no matter what God says. Even though we're like that, God still gives us his blessings. God still puts good things in our lives and allows us to move forward. And if that doesn't put his love into perspective, nothing will. You know, I, I've seen this a lot in... Um, with, with students, more kind of when I was in youth group as opposed to now because I have a different perspective being a youth pastor. Uh, but what, you know, it happens in adults too. What I see is that, you know, people, they're really good at living the Christian life. I, when, I was, when I was in youth group, I had a bunch of friends who lived the Christian life. You know, they went on the retreats. They went to church every Sunday, Wednesday, every night to youth group. They read the Bible. You know, they're really good at discussing it. They were leaders, you know, in the youth group. So they were really good at living this Christian life, but they had a secret, and that, that was they were living you know, a spiritual life of entitlement. Right? They were expecting things, and half the time they were getting them because it's, it's easier at that age. But it's also easier to turn away because as soon as adversity hit you know, these people, that's what they did. As soon as they didn't get what they wanted when they wanted it, they turned away from God. And it turns out they didn't actually want God. They didn't want Jesus. They just wanted his blessings. I feel like that's how, you know, a lot of us are at one time or another. You know, we want uh, God's blessing. We want kind of like a a one-way relationship with God where we get his blessings all the time, but we get to pick and choose when we want to actually be in a relationship, you know, with him. But that's worldliness. That's us thinking that, honestly, we're more important than we are. 
Because if you think about it, in the grand scheme of things, right, in God's grand scheme, we're nothing. God doesn't need us to reach his end game. He's already put the plan in motion. The outcome is already decided, whether regardless of we're in it or not. He just loves us enough to where he is inviting us and including us in his plan, including us in his kingdom. And when we truly recognize that, when we understand that, that's when we begin to move from worldliness into godliness, right? that constant battle. But let's go back to the text. Uh, so we've broken down verse 1 through 3. Verse 4, it starts off, it says, You adulterous people. Right? You adulterous people. Now again, our immediate reaction to this, I bet a bunch of you just shut down. Right? Adulterous people. Nope, that's not me. Nope, never done it. Never, never cheated on a spouse. Never cheated on a boyfriend, girlfriend. That's not me. He's not talking about me here. But again, that's, that's our culture and our understanding defining a term that God put in the Bible. But what God's actually talking about here in the Bible, an adulterous person is a promise breaker. Someone who made a promise and broke it. And now I doubt anyone wants to fight that here this morning, right? right? We all make promises. We all break them. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Right, now, here's what we all do. Every single person in this room, we make promises, whether they're big or small. And also what we do is we, is we break promises, whether intentionally or unintentionally. That's just what we do. That's who we are. We're sinful people. But I bet at one point in your life, you know, at some point in your life, you have made a promise with absolutely zero intention of keeping it. Again, whether or not like a big promise could be a small little thing, you don't even have to say the words, I promise. But you made an intentional promise without the intention of keeping it. And I think that's how it works with God most of the time too. We basically barter with God. Right? You find yourself doing that in prayer. You say, God, if you take care of this part of my life, you know, I'll do this. Right? God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you take care of this and help me along with this, you know, I'll, I'll pray more, I'll read my Bible more, I'll go to church every Sunday. And most of the time you do that knowing you're not going to actually fulfill that. Or maybe you, in, the, in the moment you think, yeah, I will do those things. I will go to church every Sunday. And then you wake up Sunday morning and you're like, eh, ain't not worth it now because I've already got the blessing that I prayed for. We're all promise breaker. We're all adulterous people. And what happens is when God doesn't act the way that we think he should, in our minds, when God doesn't act how we think he should, we begin to pull away. Right, when it doesn't work out, we say, you know, screw it, I can do this on my own. And that's, that's another thing that this world like, puts on top of us. It says, you know, you got to go out there and you got to work hard. you got to work 23 and a half hours a day and, and deserve and earn everything that you get. Like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it yourself. But l- let me know how that works out for you, okay? Because it's not going to work out. Right? God didn't design it like that. Right? But what happens is we begin to try and pull away from God when we feel like he's not providing for us. At that verse talking about friendship, we begin to pull our friendship away from God, pull our relationship from God. And so what we do with it is we actually give it to the world because we feel like the world's providing for us, right? All these little things that we want and we get, the world's giving us to us. We're giving that to ourselves. And so we take our friendship, our relationship away from God and give it to them. And again, verse four says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, Right, and that last sentence there, it's again another idea that uh, our worldly view causes us to misunderstand. Right? And this is an important one. Right? It's that, this idea of friendship. 
right? This friendship that this passage talks about. Really, what we consider friends nowadays, it's so different. What we consider friendships are honestly just like casual acquaintances, right? Real friendship is like how it was maybe 70 or 80 years ago, right? When, when nobody had backyards or fences or, uh, or, sorry, fences in their backyards. You know, doors were never locked. People lived in small towns and knew everybody in the town and knew everybody's secrets. Like, that's when people truly knew each other. But nowadays, we, we feel like we know people just because you've seen them before. Like, we could be walking down the road, or, and, you know, there's Jim and Sally, and I say, hey, there's Jim and Sally. And you're like, yeah, that's Jim and Sally. Those are my best friends. I'm like, oh, cool. What's their last name? And you're like, hold on, let me pull up Facebook real quick. Like, because we feel like we know these people, but we really don't. And, and social media has gotten even worse because this idea of friends. Right? We feel like we know all these people. But really, all social media has done is basically make what we called stalking 20 years ago legal now. Right? That's all we do. Because, you know, you see somebody, oh, there's Bob. Let's, let's look him up on social media. Oh, wait, who's this in the picture with Bob? That must be his girlfriend. So we go to her page. Oh, she's got a picture with another guy, right? Who's this guy? Oh, wait, that's her brother. Like, you know, it's just, that's what we do. We think these casual acquaintances are our true friends, and it's just not the case. Right? But God calls us into true friendships. And, and, and not saying that nobody has true friends, because we, lots of us do. We have those really good true friends that we can confide in. Right? And we need those people in our lives because, you know, if I were to walk up to you today and say, hey, I know something about you. Like, I, like I know something about you. Like, you need those friends in your life that you've already confided in. And you say, man, I've got no secrets. I've already told my friends. Like, they know what's going on in my life. They're holding me accountable. Those are the friendships you need. Those are the, that's the relationship, the friendship we're supposed to have with Christ. And that's the friendship we see in this passage. Right? And so James is arguing that basically it's the ones who are struggling internally, that we talked about, struggling internally with contentment, right? in a spirit of entitlement. They're the ones that are turning away uh, from their friendship with the Lord. Right? I mean, if you just look at Jesus' friendship, Jesus in the Bible, right? this is a guy that every single person on earth probably wanted to be friends with. Whether for good intent or bad friend, every single person wanted to be friends with Jesus Christ. But he kept his inner circle tight. He kept those, those 12 guys. Those were his friends. Those were the guys that he poured into. Right? And so from looking at Jesus' friendships, his relationships, we can see that godly friendship is three things. Three simple things. The first thing, godly friendship is intimate. Right? Godly friendships are intimate, meaning you open up to people. And again, using this worldly perspective that we've got clouding our minds, this dirty mind we've got, that seems like a weird word. Right, but it's not sexual, it's not, a weird, it's not a weird intimate, it's just life together. Right, inviting people into your life, opening up to them, them opening up to you. Right, allowing them to see your successes, like your wins, your failures, your weaknesses, everything about you, you're inviting them to see. And it's the same way that Jesus was to his disciples. Right? He told them everything. They were there for the worst parts of his life and the best. Right, that's an intimate uh, friendship. The second thing that godly friendship is, is restrictive. Godly friendship is restrictive, meaning simply you can't have 30 or 40 or 100 close friends, right? That doesn't work. Like you see, Christ himself kept it to, to about 12 guys. But even if you look like in the Bible, in, throughout his ministry, when he's doing all these amazing things, like God really only, or Jesus Christ only had two or, or three or four guys around him at a time. The other guys were off doing other things, and he was pouring into those two, those three, those four guys at one time. He was building those relationships, building that close, intimate, but yet restrictive relationship. 
And again, because of this world, we don't like the word restrictive. Right? That's not, that's not a good word for us. We don't like to be contained. We don't like to be restricted. But with our worldly view, that's what we see. If you look at it through God's perspective, restrictive means good. Restrictive means exclusivity. Right? We like that word. It means exclusivity. It means truly knowing someone and them knowing you. And then lastly, a godly friendship is an invitation to critique. An invitation to critique. And this one, this critique, this one uh, is pretty simple, right? Most of us don't do well with criticism. We don't do well with critique. And that's because we've allowed people who aren't our true friends to come into our life and critique it and criticize us. Again, social media has opened up this whole new world where people feel like they know us and so they can come into our lives and say things about it. And what happens is we get shut off to the idea of it. And so we don't allow our true friends, our close friends, to come speak into our lives. Right? But what you see is that criticism that those people on social media have or people that don't really know you, that's born out of judgment. Right? They don't give a crap if you become a better person. They don't care how your life goes. Right? But it's your true friends that do. It's your true friends that if you actually open yourselves up and allow them to speak into your life, it's amazing what helpful criticism can do. Right? So that's godly friendship. That's what we get out of that verse 4. Verse 5 and 6, it says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? I love this part. because So what word stands out to you in that passage? Right, that first little thing, jealousy. Right, the word jealousy is one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible when it comes to God. Because right? the thing you have to understand about this word jealousy is, yes, God is a jealous God. Right? God is a jealous God. But what's so essential to understanding this verse is that we have to know that God's jealousy is not born out of insecurity. Right? His jealousy is not born out of insecurity like ours. We can't project our ideas and our definitions of things onto him. Right? And people often use uh, this idea, this idea that God is a jealous God as a reason not to believe in him. Right? They say, if God's jealous, he's not God. And that's just so misguided. Like, if you do any kind of research, you'll see. Right? You have to understand, God is not jealous of you. He is not jealous of me. Right? God is not jealous of you, but he is jealous for you. Right? God is not jealous of you, but he is jealous for you. His jealousy isn't in, oh, I want what they have. His jealousy isn't in, I want what that person has over there. His jealousy is that I want them filled with the spirit that I have because I love them so much. I want them to have what I'm offering. I want them to have what I'm offering and not what the world is offering because that's not what's good for them. I know what's good for them, so I'm jealous for them. I want them to have the spirit that I am giving to them. It's a jealousy born out of his love for us and his desire to reach every single person on earth with his gift of grace and salvation. John Piper said, God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness of fear. Instead, God's jealousy is like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the shores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his power, his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithfulness of a fickle spouse. 
Right? You see what happens here is they paint this image you know, of God taking us out of the pits, picking us up off our back, cleaning us up, wiping us off, giving us new clothes, giving us a new life, a new purpose, and not only you know, just an average purpose, but one of a high calling, right? a life filled with purpose and honor in His blessing, taking us from nothing to everything. That's what God's jealousy is. Right? And then what's our answer? Right? What's our answer to this? He does all this stuff for us. God's jealous for us. He loves us. He gives us all these blessings. And what do we do? We say, nah. Right? Like, I'm good. You know, I don't want that. You're not the God for me, at least not right now. Right? You're not a good provider for me because you didn't give me what I wanted when I wanted it. Right? And it's just crazy. Like, we reject God in this way, but then it gets even crazier. Because what does verse 6 say? It says, but he gives us more grace. God gives us more grace. That's his answer to our answer. Right? There's a verse in Romans that says, where sin increased, grace abounds more. Right? You see, that's the power of God. It's, it's this narrative that just keeps going. Right? Where he gives us stuff, we reject it, and then he gives us more. That's the power of godliness over worldliness. That's the difference in godliness over worldliness. Godliness will always trump worldliness. God's power will always trump that of this world. And it's not even like a nail-biting, you know, battle. It's a massive win for godliness. It's a huge deal. It's, it's basically like every Clemson Carolina game over the past four years, right? Like that kind of win for godliness, right? It's a big deal. It's God's grace mixed with his jealousy and love for us. That's godliness. But if we go, so back to the text, uh, verses seven through 10 now. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so now again, we get basically this, continuing this narrative, we get uh, to our response to God's response. Right? Again, this narrative, this timeline of reoccurring events. Right? God gives us everything, we reject it. God gives us more. And so now what's our response? James tells us simply that our ultimate response to God should be submission, to submit. Right, our ultimate response to God should be to submit. And so now this, uh, basically how we act in this idea of submission is one of the funniest things. Right, only us as sinful humans could come up with, with this reaction. Right, so I see, uh, see it a lot as a pastor, especially as a youth pastor. Uh, but what happens is someone truly begins to feel God working in their life. Right, they truly start to feel God's presence in their life and in their heart. You know, maybe they're at church on a Sunday or listening to a powerful sermon online or they're at a conference and amazing worship's going. They feel God just wash over them. And they're like, God, I want to follow you. Right? I want to live for you. I've got all this stuff going on in my life. I've got all this stress, this anxiety, this indecision, all this struggle, and I want to give it up to you. And then they go home or they stop watching the sermon. And then it comes time to actually follow through with the submission. And again, they're like, eh, I don't know about that anymore. Right? They're scared that God's going to take something out of their lives. They're not going to be able to live the way that they want to live by submitting to God. 
right? That intense moment of Jesus and them feeling Jesus is kind of washed away, and now they're scared to live up to it. And again, what's, what's funny about this is, you know, we're scared that God's going to take something out of our lives. Like we're scared to, to submit to God because we think our life's going to change. And so we say, no, I want to hold on to this stuff. But the stuff that we want to hold on to is actually what's causing the initial stress, anxiety, and struggle in the first place. Right? It just doesn't make sense, but that's how we act. Right? We've got all this crazy stuff going on in our lives, all these burdens, and we're like, God, I just can't handle it anymore. Take this from me. And God says, okay, I'm here. I'll take it from you. And then you're like, actually, maybe not. I kind of like this stuff. If you could take this other stuff. But that's just not, that's not how it works. Right? It's this crazy cycle, and that's what James is calling us to break out of. Right? I mean, we get into this cycle in our lives of, of stress and anxiety and indecision and struggle and all these, these burdens, almost to the point where it becomes a comfort for us. Right? If there's not a major source of anxiety or stress in our life, we're like, something's not right. It's going a little too good. I've got to figure out another way to stress about something. Right? We all do it. But what happens is, is, again, this image of, you know, God's up there sitting on his throne, and, and we love God at times, and then other times we feel like he's not providing, so we're saying, God, actually, I'm going to take that seat from you. Right? I think I can be a better king of my life at this time because you're just not doing what I want you to do. And God says, okay, you know, I'll take a step down, and, and you sit up on the seat, but what you have to notice is that God never takes more than a step away. And he's always just there waiting for you so that when finally you do, you're sitting on that throne and you do get beat down and overcome by the world and the burdens and all the things that you go through in your life. And you're just like, God, I can't take it anymore. He's right there, right next to you, willing to take it back over. And he says, okay, I've got it. No problem. Just take a step down and rest. Like, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus and how much he loves us, his jealousy, his grace, his mercy, all of that portrayed in that one image. And again, you know, these fears that God's going to take something out of our lives, it's not unfounded, right? God is a father and he's an amazing one at that. And so like a good father, he's going to keep you accountable. He is going to take stuff out of your life. But the stuff that he's taking out is what's causing your stress and your anxiety and your struggle. It's the stuff that maybe you think, you know, you don't need taken out of your life, but he knows it's what you need taken out of your life. And that's what we need to just submit to his will, submit to his plan for our lives, and we'll see that take place. And so how do we do that? How do we submit? How do we submit to God? We see it right here in this passage. Like first, we resist the devil. Pretty simple. We resist the devil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right, so the excuse that the devil made me do it, that doesn't fly with God. Right? He's incredibly merciful, he's incredibly graceful, providing grace, but like a good father, he'll also hold you accountable. But what's so cool is in this accountability, in this process of him holding you accountable, he also acknowledges that there is a real enemy that you're facing. Right? He acknowledges that we are sinful people and that there's a battle waging inside of us, an internal, a spiritual battle that the devil is just feeding life into. Right? God knows that. He knows that we're sinful people. But he won't let it overpower us. You see, basically, submission, is an in, submission to God is an invitation into his power. 
right? So basically, you know, we can submit to him through resistance. He provides an escape, a backup plan, so that when we can't hang on our own anymore, we do have an escape. It's through him and through his power. And so by choosing to fight the good fight, to stand firm against the devil, to not let him overrun us, we are actually submitting to God. So we have to resist the devil. The second thing that we have to do to, to submit to God is to pursue God. Again, we see it in the verse. To pursue God. We see the command, right? The command and the promise in verse 8 of this passage. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And most of the time we see, uh, we see the command, right? Because that's what we have to do. That's our responsibility. We see the draw near to God part. But we neglect the promise, the second part of that verse, a promise from God himself that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And then, but a lot of people, I think, you know, that, that sounds a lot easier than it is, right? So a lot of people, that's what they think. You know, what does drawing near to God even look like in my life? Like, what does it practically look like to me? And, and actually, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. You know, the follow-through is kind of tough, but the idea of what you have to do is pretty simple, and it's simply doing the same things that, as Christians, we're supposed to do every day, right? It's, it's spending time with him and his word, spending time in prayer with him, spending time trying to understand the wisdom and the knowledge that he's left behind in his Bible, in the Bible, right? Filling your life with other people around you, a community of believers who are trying to do the same thing as you and strengthen their relationship with Christ, God designed us for community. That's why we take life groups so importantly here at Coastal. God designed us for community. And so in order to submit to him, in order to pursue God, we have to do all these things, right? I mean, we have to fill our life with people and things that are going to aid us in coming to know him more. We have to push out the stuff that's not and bring in you know, the powerful, influential stuff that will get us to know Christ more. That's how we submit to God. And then the last way, the final way we can submit to him is it says to get serious about sin. We have to get serious about sin. In verse 8, it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? And this is cool because, you know, I think like a lot of times we only address uh, like more of the physical sins that we see. But James, in this verse, he's addressing both the external and the internal sins, right? James is saying not only be aware of the stuff that's going on around you, the choices that you're making on the outside, but also be aware of the sins of the heart, right? He says, wash your hands, but also don't forget to purify your hearts and your mind. Don't, let, don't neglect that. Recognize that the devil is working both on you and in you, right? There's a real enemy. There's a real battle going on. And to be honest, you know, it's the external things that are kind of easier to take care of, right? I mean, it's easier to wash our hands than to purify our hearts. I mean, it's easy to almost, you know, wash hands and say, you know, you know, no bad decisions made today. I'm good to go today. You know, it's easy to put on a show for other people to act like we're just, you know, great Christians. That's the easy stuff to do. You know, because if you think about it, internally so much more difficult. If you really think about it, from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, there's one thing you're always doing. You're always basically talking to yourself, right? Some of us do it more than others. Some of us do it audibly, 
but we all, you know, talk to ourselves, and we talk to ourselves more than anybody else, you know, we think. You know, I know there's some husbands here that, you know, they have really talkative spouses, and they're like, nobody can talk to me more than this, than she does. And maybe the same for women, they have a husband like that, but we all talk to ourselves more than anybody else. And it's this internal dialogue, this internal struggle and battle that really determines our efforts. It really determines how we're able to go about and grow internally and spiritually, you know, and cleanse ourselves on the inside. Right? God's saying, James is saying, don't just wash your hands or recognize there's another fight and stay strong in it. And then the next part of the passage goes on into verse 9 and 10. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so I think the issue with this, at least, at least I believe the issue is this with this passage, is that everybody wants their life to just be rainbows and unicorns and cotton candy and happiness and bubbliness and fun. That's what everybody wants. We want our movies to show that, our TV, TV shows, our music, our families, our friends. We definitely want church to be like that. We want it to be all fun, but that's not the case. But if you look at it, what we just said, in order to submit to God, we have to take sin seriously. Like sin is here. Like it's relevant. It's in our lives. We're sinful people. Right? So what James is saying, he's simply saying to take sin seriously. Right? He's saying it's a bad thing. We're full of it. So take it seriously. Right? Don't be joyful about it. Don't neglect it. Don't act like it's nothing. Sin is a big deal. He's saying to honestly be sad about it. It says be wretched and mourn and weep. Be sad you know, regret when you sin, shed a tear when you sin, right? Pray to God for the ability to understand the gravity and the seriousness of your sin, right? Because there's going to be bad choices made in your life. There's going to be bad things that happen to you. But he's saying just be humble about them. Be grieved by your sins, right? We have to know that we're not, we're not designed to handle them on our own, so we don't need to act like we are. Don't neglect our sin. No, we have to turn to God. Right? And say, God, I can't do it. I need you. Humble yourselves before God. And, and then what did the end of that verse say? It says that he will exalt you. Right? That same promise that we've seen in the draw near to him and he'll draw close to you. If we submit to him, if we turn to him and say, God, I need you, he will raise us up. He will take the burden off of us and then give you all the blessings that you're looking for. You know, we see this uh, time and time again in the Bible. You know, maybe none more so than in the story of the, uh, the woman who was accused of being uh, an adulterer. All right, so what happens is th- these guys, uh, they drag this woman out naked into the town center, and, and they put her in front of everybody, and they say, look at this woman. She is accused of adultery. The law says that she is guilty. The law says that we have to stone her. The law says that she must die. And so they look at Jesus, and they say, Rabbi, what say you? And so he says, let the one of you who has not sinned cast the first stone. And the Bible tells us that oldest to youngest, they dropped their stones and they went home. And then what happened? God picked up a rock and pelted her right in the face, right? No, that's not what happened. Right? He picked her up, the Son of God, the Almighty Heavenly Father, God in the flesh, the one who could do no wrong, the creator of everything, bent down and picked this woman off the ground right? Picked her up uh, dirty and naked, covered in guilt and shame. 
right? And he says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. That's crazy to me. You see, this woman was humbled beyond all others. She was at the lowest of the low. But that's when God came into her life and took over. Right? He cast aside those attempting to break her. He picked her up and he restored her. Right? It's the humble who receive the love and the grace. And so that's what we have to try to be. And then there's the last part of the passage we're looking at. The last part, verses 11 and 12, it says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so again, what we see here is that James is in complete contradictory status to what we know, to what the world teaches us. Again, this idea of worldliness versus godliness. You know, we try to, you know, we try to project our understanding onto God's word, and we just misunderstand so much. Right, what he is saying in this passage is that those who've known God, right, those who have received God, who have experienced his mercy and his grace and his blessing and his gifts, right, you've now been given the ability to see past people's shortcomings, to see past their weaknesses, and to truly see who they are. And that's probably the biggest difference in worldly view versus the godly view, the biggest difference in godliness versus worldliness. Right? Because when you think about it, what's easier, to find someone's failures and their shortcomings or to point out their successes and their strengths? I know for me, and I would assume a lot of you, it's a lot easier to point out, to point out uh, people's weaknesses. It's just the easier thing to do. And what really annoys me I just when people kind of hide behind that. Right? Basically just being mean and saying, oh, I'm just being honest. I know that's, that's judgment and that's condemnation. Right? That's not godly. What we need to pray for is discernment in those situations. That's a godly trait. Right? That's what happens when you know God and when you experience him and you have a relationship with him and then you're able to take that and interact with the people around you. Right there, the passage says there's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge. And guess what? It's not you, it's not me, it's not Pastor Chris or Billy Graham or the Pope or anybody on God's green earth. Right? It's Jesus Christ, it's God. Right? Our job is not to judge people, our job is to speak life and speak love into people's lives. And when we understand that, that simple fact right there, we become wise. That is true godly wisdom. Right? And James is arguing that we're, when we walk in true wisdom and understanding, right? when, we, when we know these things, when we experience the grace of God, these, these things that we talked about in the beginning of the passage, right? the quarrels and the fights and all the judgments that we face, they begin to dissipate. Right? It's not that we won't have them, but because we always will, we're sinful people. This is a sinful world. We're just able, you know, we're quicker to, to own them. We're quicker to, to seek forgiveness and give forgiveness. Right? We're quicker to absorb the sins and the things that come into our lives that would normally, you know, break us down. Right? We don't always have to be right. So if we've experienced grace, we're able to absorb the sin against me. We're also able to help others do the same. Right? That's the difference in godliness and worldliness. That's the difference in the understanding. So that's the goal for all of us here. 
That's what James says. Transform your mind into one of this world, into, from one of this world into one uh, of God. I interpret this passage through, through godly lenses, not worldly lenses. And again, we're all, different, we're all in different steps in our, in our walk with God. We're all in different spots in our relationships with Him. We all have different next steps to take. Right, but maybe for some of you today, you know, it just it made a little sense today. The idea of submission made sense to you today. You know, maybe that's, that's your next step this morning is to truly submit to God, to resist the devil, to pursue what God has next for you. And so if that is you this morning, I just invite you to pray this with me. Father God, I, I thank you for the friendship and the love that you offer me. God, I thank you that you love me so much that you are willing to let me mess up, uh, but then be right there to take over when I can't handle it anymore. God, I don't want to keep going through the cycle of need and rejection. God, I want to submit to you. I want you to be the center of my life, Lord, and I want to be the person that reads your word, that walks in community, that resists the devil that pursues you, that takes sin seriously. I want to be the person that prays for discernment and casts aside judgment and condemnation. God, make me that person today. And just help it to this morning, whatever it is, to just not be a fleeting moment, you know, but a life of submission to your plan and your will for my life. Thank you. And God, for everyone else here, we just thank you for these truths presented in your word. God, help us to hear them and to understand them and take them to heart. God, help us to implement them and use them and look for the next step that you have for us in our life. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for paying the price for our sins so that each and every one of us could experience your love, your grace, and your gift of salvation. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.